Hello and welcome to the third episode of Black Worlds Presents. On Thursday, February 7th, we were delighted to host the Carcanet poets Beverly Bree Bahik, Alison Brackenbury and Nina Bogan. Carcanet started as a literary magazine founded in 1962. Michael Hind, a member of the original editorial committee, recalls how the idea was to collect together and publish as a periodical poetry, short fiction and intelligent criticism of all the arts. There were to be both student and senior members' contributions. The intention was to link Oxford and Cambridge together. Carcanet now publish books. Their focal interest is in literature and English, all of the English is now spoken and written. In 1999, the press acquired Oxford University's fine poetry list. Dedicated to discovery, appraisal and reappraisal, Carcanet is a unique survivor in the precarious world of literary imprints. Their editorial continuity has generated a list of deep coherence and innovation, not only among the authors rediscovered, but also among the new authors they publish. First up, Beverly B. Brayock is a poet, translator and occasional critic. Her collection, White Streets, was a finalist for the 2012 Forward Prize. Hunting the Boar 2016 was a Poetry Book Society recommendation, and her translation, Guillaume Apollinaire, The Little Auto, won the 2013 Scott Moncrief Prize. Tonight, she'll be exploring her collection, The Hotel Eden, which is a collection that explores seeing the world, published in August last year. Next, we will have Alison Brackenbury, who has published, I believe, 11 collections with Carcanet. Yep, got a nod there. <laughs> um, the First Dreams of Power was published in 1981, was a Poetry Book Society recommendation, and Skies, which was published in 2016, was chosen by The Observer as one of its poetry books of the year. Her work has been awarded the Eric Gregory Award and a Cholmondeley Award by the Society of Authors. For over 30 years, her poems have appeared in Britain's major poetry journals, as well as frequently being featured on Radio 3 and 4. She also reviews poetry for a wide range of publications. Tonight, Alison will be reading from her brand new collection, Gallop, featuring poems which are haunted by horses, unseasonable love, history, hairs and unreasonable hope. Finally, we have Nina Bogan, who is a poet and translator. Her previous collections are In the North, The Winter Orchards and The Lost Hair. In addition to numerous translations in the domain of arts history, her translation of The Illiterate by Agota Christoph was published in 2014. Her poems have appeared in literary magazines and anthologies in the United States, Canada, England and France. Tonight, she'll be sharing her collection Thousandfold, exploring a journey through seasons and landscapes, a journal of ordinary life punctuated by extraordinary people and moments. We are incredibly lucky to be able to enjoy hearing this collection as officially it's published in March, so we get a bit of a sneak peek. <laughs> this evening, we will be chaired by Bernard O'Donoghue, who is Emeritus Fellow of Wadden College, where he taught medieval English and modern Irish poetry. He has published six collections of poetry, including Gunpowder, winner of the 1995 Whitbread Prize for Poetry, and Farmer's Cross in 2011, which was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize, as well as a verse translated of a Sir Gwain and the Green Knight in 2006. Each speaker this evening is going to read for around about 20 minutes um, from their collections, alongside conversation around their work um, afterwards at the end. I hope you enjoy the event and ask you to please join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Beverly B. Brick, Alison Brackenbury, Nina Bogan and Bernard O'Donoghue. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for being here. It's really a pleasure to be reading with Alison and Nina and introduced by Bernard um, and thank you all very much for coming. I'm going to start by reading a poem from my uh, previous collection called White Sheets. I'll read the first poem from that one. And then I'll go on and read from the collection that's just been published by Carcanet called The Hotel Eden. Somebody pointed out to me a couple of weeks ago that Sheets and laundry and ironing figure a great deal in my poetry. And this whole collection was called White Sheets. I think for me, 
looking at sheets on the line as a sign that everything is in order in the world, and that's a little bit ironic in view of this poem. White Sheets has an epigraph from uh, a news story, Airstrike Hits Wedding Party, Breaking News. The empty laundry basket fills with molecules of light. She stands beside it, arms falling into the aftermath of the task. Gesture is a proto-language, researchers say. The same circuits light the brain when a chimp signals, help me please, hand outstretched, palm up, as when human beings process speech. In the cave, the hunter figure mirrors his spear's trajectory towards the deer it will never, of course, attain. The woman sees nothing untoward. Her body bars the spattered something in the middle distance, though all of this is right up close. The shed they'll use to dress the meat, the plain geometry of white sheets on a line. The world is beautiful, she thinks or feels, as deer sense something coming and move out of range. Beautiful, the woman thinks, and lifts the laundry basket to her arms. Beautiful and orderly. And here I'm going to start by reading the title poem. Its title comes from... Um, Its title comes from a box, one of those glass boxes. Let me just find it here. Right, by Joseph Cornell. Probably most of you have seen one. Um, and this one was a collection, an assemblage of um, bits of paper and objects. There's a stuffed parrot, for instance, and some eggs. Uh, and um, I begin here by describing what I see when I look at this assemblage and then just riffing on my own thoughts about it. The Hotel Eden after Joseph Cornell. Fragments of a life protected under glass. A parrot on its perch. A crock of corks. Butt end of an egg. The spring from a gutted clock. This poster for Eden, scorched and brittle as a boy's treasure map. On the tip of God's tongue, the bird waits to be named. Profoundly silent, the taxidermist's shop. If only, thinks the bird. If only what? Against survival, against feathers, against corks in bottles, against the pathos of stuffed birds, against, against. From laughter to slaughter, the house of objects is repossessed. The knife recalls the flint flakes. The flint nodule dreams the chalk cliff. There's a key to it somewhere. Break the glass? I live in Paris. My husband is French, and we have been dividing our time for the last little while between California and Paris, but now we're in Paris for six months. But for the last 10 years, we've spent part of every year in Paris and part uh, in California. And while we're in France, we often are in Provence, which is where my husband comes from originally. So I'm going to read a group of Paris poems set around the Luxembourg Garden and then uh, end up with a poem set in Provence. Real Estate. A man with a sensual mouth re his scarf in the glass of the shop of ownership dreams, room upon room with working fireplaces and tall windows to tempt the out-of-doors in and frame it. His eyes mirror the eyes of the woman ponytailing her hair in an atelier d'artiste, and time for a heartbeat stops kicking sandwich papers and homeless cans around the terrace of the café, where one might sit and watch Roma array their wealth of yellow foam and gaily collared bedding in the capacious shadows of Saint-Sulpice. In the Luxembourg Garden, an eternity. They've been here forever, the regulars, 
jaundiced as the little copse of birch trees, toasted round the edges like chestnut leaves. Three deep, they doze over book and fountain, haunt the lyric glade where Verlaine glares, rent sailboats for blonde cherubim to launch, or school them in guignol. On a studious bench, they straddle lovers, or slump with heads thrown back, feet propped upon an idle chair, and let the sun fondle their flesh. A finger marks the page, a cuff of cigarette ash lengthens until, without a sound, it separates, winks in the iron air, timeless as cosmic dust confettis down. Pelouse interdite, which means, as I'm sure everybody knows, keep off the grass. The older man lopes off across the lawn, trimmed with iron barbed to mimic bramble, and garden chairs painted an indulgent green, straight-backed or low-slung and comfortable to read a book or all the afternoon paper in. His wife sings out his name. He just floats on across the forbidden grass, skirting beds of summer bloom, until she wades into the pool of green and, reaching him, tugs on his arm to lead him back to the established path. A guardian has seen them trespass. They're not unruly. She whistles at the students instead, over by the beehives, playing frisbee. The Fête du Miel. There are some beehives in the Luxembourg Garden. And every year, late September, early October, they sell the honey to uh, anybody who comes. When summer is over, the beekeepers sell their excess honey to the neighbors. Is it the mythic precincts that gives its savor to the honey from these hives? Or is it the pollution? Wishful thinking the walls of our garden. Blackbirds sing, bees suck where they will. On dog-pissed street trees, exhaust-fueled geraniums and ivies as on the blossoms of an apple tree coddled by a Carthusian in a monastery. Last winter was so warm, the bees thought summer never ended. The beekeepers write on notices posted round the hives. All winter, the bees were out foraging for nectar. Finding little, they consumed their reserves. There's no honey to sell this September. At the Luxembourg Museum, Fontaine Latour. A modest age of buttoned up young men and girls with strictly parted hair, intent on canvases and books. No one stares boldly from the picture frame. The fruit is unambiguously ripe. In age, in rage, he tried his hand at nudes. Morning's flamboyant curls and drowsy flesh dissolving into sheets of rumpled cloud, truth toasted by the poets in top hats. No risky odalisque, no erotic picnics on the grass. Alas, no undressed bourgeois gentlemen discoursing on what, their penises as silky as cocoons, his dewy roses or for looking at. In the orchard. So part of the Luxembourg Garden, the uh, west southwest corner used to be an orchard in a monastery, and they've kept a section of the orchard. The Luxembourg Palace clock strews its chimes over Euclidean parterre, and a sentry swivels to ogle a jogger. Seasonal palms migrate towards the orangerie. Back in the southwest quadrant with the bees, stripped heirloom apple and pear trees, a persimmon still indecent with fruit, I watch the sun dip behind Montparnasse. More ripe chestnuts 
plop into the grass. The last kids are bribed off the carousel, Baudelaire aloof on his pedestal, and my neighbors conclude their lover's spat. Chérie, je t'en prie, stop. One cold snap, and the whole Baroque décor will collapse. And then I have a translation, it's called Autumn Song, and it's um, after Baudelaire. Now we will plunge into the cold shadows, so long dancing light of our short summers. Already I hear the funereal blows of firewood ricocheting off the cobbles. Winter is going to repossess my soul, anger, hate, frisson, horror, drudgery, and like the sun caught in its polar hell, a raw frozen lumps what my heart will be. I shudder as each log strikes the cobbles. A gallows raising would resound the same. I feel like some tower that collapses under the assault of a battering ram. Lulled by the thud's monotony, I dream they nail a coffin together somewhere. Who for? Yesterday, summer, today, autumn. The mysterious noise rings like a departure. <coughs> I'm going to shift for a moment to the south of France. And this poem is called Herbarium or herbarium, I'm not absolutely sure how you pronounce that. And um, it describes a house in a village in the Vaucluse. A walled garden with a low door, up to the cafe come grocery, P.O. and church, down to the brook and cemetery. In the middle, a mulberry tree offers shade from the summer heat a clothesline moored to its scarred gray trunk, and a white table rusting in the gravel with three slatted chairs, two of them broken, all needing paint. Everything is old and serviceable. That sheet drying on the line was stitched together from two of a great aunt's ones, worn thin in the center. Take that, says the hunter's shotgun, from vineyards ripe for harvesting, buzz of a chainsaw, someone else repairing something. This one doesn't really have a place. It comes from some newspaper stories. It's called States of Siege. For his father, Hamoudi cooks soup from grass. The, the shepherd tells him what kind the sheep like. When they killed the donkey, I took a few ounces, though Islam forbids it. Starvation is infidel. When neighbors slaughter the last horse in town, Ahmed says, I knew that horse. What poetry matches a litany of facts? Another three soldiers and an Afghan interpreter killed in two blasts. Toronto, Globe and Mail. Sacked houses and temples. They killed women and infants along with the livestock. Thucydides. Just give us the facts in their armored personnel carriers. Longhouse, British Columbia, where uh, I, I grew up. Or consider the Haida with their hundred-odd er words for rain, their long houses, their bald eagles, their abalone jewelry, and their elaborate gift-giving economy that failed to save them from the Europeans who wanted their fish, their forests, and their flags over everything. Back to Provence. Winter pears. On the road that descends into La Roque, after the picnic table and a high-perched cemetery, a pear tree gnarls up from a farmyard, hoarding its pears. A sin to let these fat pears grow to waste, 
I knock at the farmhouse and ask, do they belong to the pears and may we pick some? But the woman drying her hands on a tea towel smiles, no, not her pears. They belong, she points further down, the house we stopped at yesterday to read the handwritten warning tacked to the gate. Mon chien court les deux cents mètres en dix secondes. Si tu cours moins vite, reste au portail et sonne. My dog covers 200 meters in 10 seconds. If you don't run that fast, stay at the gate and ring. We ring. The dog comes belting. I snatch my hand back and wait for the lady of the house in plaid felt slippers, who is just fine with us picking some pears. Don't you eat them, I ask? A few, she hedges, adding, they're winter pears, they're hard, good only for cooking. This morning, breakfast done, I lift the pears from the top of the fridge and I sort them, the unblemished, the windfalls. I take the black-handled, paper-thin knife that has been in the kitchen for maybe a hundred years, the knife that brings to my mind the black-handled knives that Chardin places slantwise across his surfaces to give his paintings their illusion of depth. And I carve out the bruises, the fine-born tunnels of worms. I slice the fruit thinly until the white flesh is almost translucent. I arrange the slices in the new pot for my Kia. I burn the old one. Add a trickle of water and leave them to simmer. Thanks very much. Good evening. First, it is necessary to make friends with the microphone, with a little help from the audience. Can you hear me at the back? Good. I shall try not to jump around too much. In 2003, I fell off a somersaulting horse. Then, as the rolling white eye of my kind mare came down towards me, I experienced that strange slowing of time which happens in extreme danger and may have happened to you. Happily, sorting out work for selected poems does not rearrange the collarbone, but it can slow the rush of life to reveal a pattern. I hope you will hear links between the last poem I read and this from my first eager collection of 1981. I was 28, living in a town and scrambling through a white-collar job. But I had come from a remote village, from a long line of servants and skilled farm workers. This poem is a tribute to the kind and lost generation of my grandparents. The queen mentioned in the poem is Victoria. My great-grandfather, the village bell ringer, received a terrifying novelty, a telegram, to say that she had died. And I must mention to much younger and wiser writers that if you want your family to stay friends with your poetry, it may not be a good idea to describe your highly active parents as dwindling. <laughs> the poem is called My Old. My old are gone, or quietly remain, thinking me a cousin from West Ham, or kiss me shyly in my mother's name. My parents seem to dwindle too, forget neat ending to a sentence they began, beginning of a journey, if not yet. Cards from village shops were sent to me, with postal orders they could not afford. They pushed in roots of flowers carelessly, and yet they grew. They said a message came to say the Queen was dead, that bells were heard. My old are gone into the wastes of dream. The snow froze hard, tramped down. Old footprints pit its smoothness, blackened footprints that I tread, that save me falling, 
though they do not fit exactly, stretching out beyond my sight. My old are gone from name. They flare instead, candles that I do not have to light. In my twenties, I did light upon the realisation that at last I could afford to learn to ride. Although I lived in town, I then, unaffordably, kept at least one horse on the hills for the next 35 years. Our first lethal but lovable horse lived to 28. Our last, the small kind mare, to 31. At one point, we had holes in the mattress but I still bought the pony, a new rug. The next poem dates from the memorable winter when my poor husband was learning to ride. The poem is called Hill Mist. I am too fond of mist, which is blind without tenderness, whose cold clings close round the face. The timid horse likes it, treading his own space, he cannot see black haystacks loom, the dog wait in wet woods, the man crouch in brambles, raise a gun. Even its sound is muffled. Death would be quiet in the mist. Upon the crest, though you will say, he bucks, he gallops, how calm you seem, rising soundlessly over the grass. Mist lets you in. All I see are the dancing lights advance, evaporate. The mist grows into a strange horse, the slender chestnut mare, the solid man we saw once riding with a woman, always now alone. You make as much of this as the white shapes smoke in my eyes. All I will say is... He is hard as ground is, in bravado rides bareheaded. How the mist must cling to him. As you step out, our horse's mane hangs heavy, dewed and glinting. There is no past here. The only future's the hidden gallop's heat. It is a place I did not mean to love. Do you live so, walking your own space? Tumbling back through my life, I'm startled to find how frequent and unexpected my travels have been, including this brief outbreak of anarchy in 1989 on a Chinese train. The poem is called Overnight. This is the Tang Shang sleeper where the chef sits drunk in the dining car. There is no gas for heaters, so the air inside is chill as snow. In soft class, wrapped in grubby piles of blanket fur, we let the miles of metal ring our bones and boots, but cannot sleep since Chinese flutes mourn through the speakers everything the winter child dreamed, sleep till spring. This dry land, neither small nor kind, will haunt me when it drops behind, as I sleep as if dead, until, scuffling wet leaves, the sparrows shrill, who cannot wake the drunken man upon the sleeper to Tang Shang. <laughs> All true. <coughs> I wish the next poem seemed equally far away. It is set in what I would quaintly have called bedsits, which I saw as a country which many of us passed through, then left. I did not know that the ruthless changes of the 1980s would leave us in the land of buy-to-let. 
The poem is called Rented Rooms. Night stole away my reason to be there, that routine note which missed the post. I came out of the throaty mist, the New Year's air, stared at the dim house which showed no name, called to a girl who rattled past her bike, blowing her fog-damp scarf, winter's hot cheeks. The first door I pushed open from their hall, gate a conservatory, shadowed, full of spoiled ferns once, sweet geraniums. Now it held bikes, askew. It breathed back all the cold of first streets, lingering on stairs. The outside door blows open. No one cares to clean. From Christmas, ivy curls in sprays, dark in rolls of dirt. Who went away, leaving this television blank above a rolled-up quilt? Quick, drop the printed note on the hall's floor. It echoes back again, the deep sea chill of fog, the waves of dust. My wonder at a room's dimmed lights. Need, then, the stairs to silence, not to own, but love. I don't think that middle age is very kind to poets, or perhaps to anybody. Its confusions may explain a careless phrase in my next poem, where I call the Romans brute engineers. The stress should be firmly on brute. I worked with engineers admiringly for three decades. This brief poem is called Epigrams. My Latin has left me which may be as well. They were brute engineers and their afterlife, hell. Only one tax days, a bird with no wings, in medias res, in the middle of things. I am weighed down by parents, made mad by my child. The late sky is sleeting, the garden is wild. I slump on a chair, in the last glow day brings, in medias res, in the muddle of things. <laughs> but out of this muddle, my 65 years in country and town, science and my own seeing have led me to one belief of terrible clarity. We are sleepwalking into climate change disaster. The next very short poem is called Species. Sometimes they rise before me in the night. The lemurs, eyes as bare and bright as moons. The lizard, ancient as the afternoon. The coral's tender hands which sun bleached white. Some are immense. The tiger, shot and still, some thumbnail-sized, like Chile's emerald frog I never saw, and soon nobody will. On a happier note, the next poem takes us into summer in this city. It dates from my roller coaster student years. Here is my one visit to Oxford's May Day celebrations, including the special cake handed out by the Morris men. I was working in a temporary job in the rambling department store, which I think may now be Debenhams, but was then more grandly known as Elliston and Cavell's. My poem, less grandly, is called May Day, 1972. How gold it was, the first wash of sky, as voices floated from the tower, as you spun the umbrella the tourist loved, on every spike 
a paper flower. How cold it was at the day's midpoint, when tiredness kicked in like a mule, when you stood at work and the hours stretched like sea in fog's breath, tense and dull. How rich and dark was the crumb of cake which came from the tin of the dancing men in absurd white clothes for luck, new life. How nothing was the same again. As many of you know, I'm disgracefully active on the internet. I have a website with a contact page. I'm on Facebook and on Instagram. And finally, I'm on Twitter, which I love, as A Brackenbury in capitals, because I left the shift key down. <laughs> Do get in touch. <laughs> the title of my selected poems is Gallop. My tiny penultimate poem takes life at full tilt, including youth and the rush hour. This poem is dedicated to all the intrepid cyclists of Oxford, of whom I was once one of the most dangerous. It is called 8am. I am cycling in a sensible, bright coat. A girl comes peddling quickly by, loose shawls, skidding from shoulders, hitch skirt, silver pumps. I was that girl. Oh, may she ride her falls. I began with a poem called My Old, about my grandparents' generation. Now, I am as old as they were when I first knew them. My last poem returns to the Lincolnshire of my childhood, but it is, I hope, for us all. I must explain a couple of words which may be as strange as Britain's complicated past. Temple refers to the Knight Templars, the controversial crusading monks who once controlled part of the village. Gath is a Viking word which here means farmyard. The poem is called Skies. It began like wonder back there in the village's dark huddle, which I can never visit, like a star. In high orbit, warm muddle, my father's hard-packed arms I passed. Winter wind stilled, hedge and puddle, pure ice. Above my wreath of breath, the weak eye of the one streetlight, beyond back lane and temple gath, Skies pricked with white until the night swam with its stars. In their grave blaze, they filled my gaze like wings in flight, which never left. Unlike the house, the anxious moves, my mother's care. For years I stood by my own house with books and charts. My father there could only name the tilted plough he followed with the snorting pair. But I found Pegasus, the slow sweep of the swan, a fierce red eye, the bull. I watched the hunter go with frostbelt over towns where I now lived, where still the galaxy, boiled by his sword in clouding sky. The books are laid aside. I see new roofs, more weak lamps. World and free, the stars, my calm dead, walk with me. Thank you very much. Right, well, this is, uh, these are hard acts to follow. 
I will do my best. And um, I'm reading poems um, from my collection called Thousandfold. Um, yeah, I should mention, well, maybe it was mentioned, um, you, you get a variety of accents here because uh, we're all, of course, English speakers. Um, you heard Beverly, who's from Canada, uh, who lives in France, uh, Alison, who's English, who lives in England, and now me, uh, who is from New York originally and have lived in France for many decades now. So I thought, without the imagination of my fellow sister poets, that um, as an introduction, I would read um, the epigraph from my book, uh, which begins with a language that I don't speak, but uh, there's only two words. <clears throat> um, so the first epigraph is from a book, a poet, uh, which whom you know, probably know, is Inger Christensen, the Danish poet. Um, and she was born in 1935 and died in 2009, just shortly after I finally discovered her poetry, um, beautifully translated by um, an American woman named Susanna Need. And um, she wrote an extraordinary book called Alphabet. And one of the poems I've I will read is um, a homage to her remarkable book, Alphabet, which begins, as an alphabet should, with the letter A. And um, in, in Danish, it's, um, forgive my Danish, Abrikosterne findes, Abrikosterne findes, which means apricot trees exist, apricot trees exist. And it goes on with a Fibonacci spiral, whatever you can call it, up to the letter L, because after that, the book would probably have continued all through Blackwell's and out into the street. So that, that's the first epigraph. And the second one is a quote from a Latvian composer, Petrus Vasks, who is still living. He's just 72 years old. And um, I don't know if you know his music. Very, very interesting, very exciting music. Very, well, there's melodies in it and, uh, and sound and so on. And this is a quote of, it's not really musical, it's his belief. And he says, one cannot live without hope. One must have hope. And my eternal theme is the struggle between good and evil. Evil may be, may be more prevalent in the world, but good is more concentrated. Nihilism and pessimism are easier because they require no effort. I go through pessimism finally to confirm at the end that I say yes until my last breath to the beauty of the world. So, I will begin with the first poem called Thousandfold. Is, is the sound okay? It's not too... Okay. <clears throat> Thousandfold. Thousandfold, the light encompasses us patiently against our mortal impatience. We are human, thus destitute. Awkward, we fumble with our small offerings to the everyday. Crumbs, petals, dust. What do we sift over? What should we keep? What turn to gold? Give thanks for, render thousandfold to light. The Hawk. I could say here that for the last <laughs> 35 or more years, um, I've been living in the French countryside, uh, which is the background to many of these 
poems in the book, not all of the ones that I'll be reading tonight. <clears throat> so this is the hawk. Her wingspans as big as a house. When she swerves down for the catch, her burnished brown wings outstretched, I'm unnerved. Or is it she? Safe indoors, I'm small as a mouse. She fixes her eye on me. We keep our distance, our seesaw harmony of sliding proportions. We will never be friends. Neighbors, rather, with a tree in common. My stately ash is her observatory. She sits on a low branch, gray and solitary. I watch her from the kitchen. Caution is our credo. These are the limits of empathy. A story. August night, the sky unwinds its skeins of light. The tiniest of stars slip through our fingers. Galaxies rest on our palms. Layer on layer of blackness, drifts of white to plunge our hands in, shake out like feathers, flurries of stars, familiar and untamed. It's a story being told forever and at this very moment. No matter that I can't understand. Wordless, I begin all over again in a newfound language where everything is waiting to be named. <clears throat> Welcome for Milena, or Milena is my granddaughter. <clears throat> Welcome, child. Bienvenue. Welcome to all things as small as you. Poppy seeds, ladybugs, drops of rain, more than a thought, less than a name, your task is simple, to become. But take your time, you've only just begun. Welcome to all that is slow, snails and stars and falling snow, sky and wind, tree and bird, and for each one, a chosen word. The world is as old as you are new. Welcome, little one. Bienvenue. <coughs> Night sounds. In the renovated farmhouse we rented in those years, all wooden paneling and rustic beams, down in the kitchen with only the floorboards between us, we could hear our daughters breathing in their room upstairs. We heard dormice scrabbling inside the walls, hazelnuts rolling the length of the attic floor. In winter, we heard owls hooting from the woods when the sharp black sky seemed to crackle with stars. It was our long-lost childhood, our city-dweller's dream. When my parents visited from New York, we'd hear my father pad downstairs in the middle of the night, cautiously open the cupboard door, unscrew the lid of a jar, and screw it tightly back on. Then... As he tiptoed up to bed, we'd hear a sound we'll never hear again, a sound like none other, the crunching of a lump of brown sugar. <laughs> Practical joke. Hard to imagine my father's father, whom I never knew, going into a corner shop in 1934 or 1935 and saying, I'll take two of those. 
celluloid turds he'd place on the back seat of the car before the ladies, dressed for an outing, his sister-in-law and wife, got in. Oh, their shrieks. Rubber spiders, crouching mice, bellyfuls of laughs. He looks out from a photo in sepia under a perky fedora, his apologetic schoolboy grin. <clears throat> Pink. It was her favorite color. In the small, overheated bathroom, pink bath rug, pink towels, pink shower curtain, pink toilet paper. Even now, I can feel the warmth hissing through the coils of the radiator as I washed my hands surrounded by pink and felt as if I might choke if I stayed one more minute in that narrow space. Grandma Sophie's tiny haven of comfort her pastel dream of a life without torment. She asked for so little, only for everyone to be happy, or short of that, then simply to be allowed to wish that everyone should be happy. On that last visit to the apartment, she was already ill, shrunken in her pink bathrobe, she followed us, my father and me, out into the hallway that smelled year in, year out of homemade chicken soup and hugged me tight, whispering fiercely into my chest, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. <clears throat> The Golden Oriole. There it is again, just outside our bedroom window at dawn. The Oriole's liquid, obsessive four-note song. He's back from Africa, where he's wintered in time for an early spring. I lift the curtain, he's flown. Of his celebrated plumage, it's yellow, it's gold. For whole summers long, I've caught only a glimpse. Shyness is his virtue. He flits from tree to tree, keeping an eye on his spouse, his young. But his song, his song is an enticement, a longing, a wish. This is the Oriole's slate of hand, his special trick to be just out of sight like a streak of good luck. Sleepless. 4 a.m. Sounds come in single file. One ring of the telephone, one tap on the roof, one bark of a deer in the woods. How I wish it would bark again and that I could dream its animal sleep on a bed of leaves along the stream. Happiness has fled. Why does it make such a difference? Come on, take yourself in hand and make a shopping list instead. String to tie up the tomato plants, a paring knife, matches, a pen, candles and storm lamps for the times ahead. Here, an alphabet. Here is an ant. Here is a bee. Here is a beetle. Here is a blade of grass. Here is a burning candle. Here is a clod of earth. Here is a clover flower. Here is a dandelion. Here is an egg. Here is a family crossing a border. Here is a guard turning them back. Here is honey in a honeycomb. Here is ice on a puddle. Here is juniper behind a fence. 
Here is a kettle of boiling water. Here is a lull in a storm. Here is a mound where bones are buried. Here is a nettle to put in a soup. Here is an opening in a fence. Here is a prisoner in a camp. Here is a quiet nothing can disturb. Here is a river too wide to swim across. Here is a stone placed on a grave. Here is a train resting on a siding. Here is an umbrella, open, closed. Here is a vine growing over a wall. Here is a wasteland at the edge of a city. Here is an X to X out words. Here is a year and the days ahead. Here is a zero, the beginning and the end. Halloween. <coughs> little girl lavender, little boy blue. Here's a pumpkin split in two. On each side, half a grin, with some teeth out and some teeth in. A triangle nose and two wide eyes that wink at you, that wink at you. Here are two candles for you to light, one for each half of a Halloween night, when long-toothed shadows flicker high and burn down low in pumpkins that keep watch until morning comes to windowsills. We can't stick the two halves back together, can't fix the marriage pact when it goes against the grain. What once was can't be again, a lesson it takes a lifetime to learn. Warm beneath your eiderdowns, you'll sleep through the night of Halloween in this house or the other with your father or mother and a harvest moon, only one, over the patio, over the park, over the patio. Be at peace and know that a parent's love cannot be halved, but rather doubled, multiplied, so unwavering are the ties of the heart. As October steals into November, here are words for you to remember. Little boy blue, little girl lavender. <coughs> Dementia has seized our marriage by the throat, made us snap and snarl and spit, slap, shout, hit. Heart pounds, door bangs, pace outside, let it settle. It's summer, it's beautiful. I pout, sulk, shrug, sigh, frown. Who is this woman I've become? The girl you married with long black hair, your honey brown eyes, your voice so warm, your trust, mine. It was good for a long time. Now your gaze is veiled, you wear someone else's smile. Your voice wobbles, anxious, edgy, your fidgety, crotchety. Where's my flashlight, my shoehorn, my book? Where did you put my cell phone, my glasses? And now I've lost my carte vitale, my carte d'identité. Yes, husband, your identity has been misplaced, mishandled, misshapen. Slowly crumbling like your old ski boots we found years later that fell apart in our hands in an avalanche of powder. Ooh. Slippers. I rue the day I bought you those black leather mules you clump around the house in and won't abandon at any price, 
though they slow you down to an old man's shuffle, you seem almost thankful to adopt. I guess each slipper is a place your foot feels at home in, unlike shoes that are hard to put on and shoelaces you can no longer tie. When at my request, you trail along behind me, you who walked so fast on errands that take us into this shop or that, when you'd rather be back in the comfort of your armchair. That must be why you tote your mules on every outing, even if they stay in the car, while your life gets smaller and more confined as it fits around an ever-diminishing version of you, your world in a shoe, your home in a slipper, your bed snug as a hand-knit sock. <clears throat> this is the penultimate poem. The Manor House. I know. I've put you in purgatory where there's nothing for you to do but wait for the time to pass in a white room down a white hallway with a white plastic bracelet around your wrist. Then one day your case comes up and a place is found, a pleasant one, for good behavior during the first seven decades of your life. A three-story mansion with a fireplace and two cats, a wide staircase and a park, almost like home. I'll never say you'll be happy there. But high up in the clouds, it's you who'll be the weather of our days, floating just above me, wrapping me in mist, showering me with sunlight, with rainfall. What else will you be? A stair climber, a night pacer, a daydreamer, above all, a secret keeper, a guardian of silences that string one past to another in the watery colors of an afterstorm's glittering light. And I know that on a clear autumn day, with a steady breeze, the manor house will rise like a hot air balloon, loosed from its moorings, and I'll wave and wave to the faces peering from the windows, searching for yours, your downcast, sorrowful eyes, my once husband, soulmate, whose soul was lost. Amen. Spice Cupboard. Juniper and clove, thyme and tarragon. Who can I depend upon? Star anise and linden flower, I went away and even further. I broke the hearts of my father and mother. Rosemary and marjoram, I married. We had a son who stayed in the womb who wasn't born, sorrow of lemon balm, solace of hypericum. Lavender and coriander, we had a daughter and another daughter. Raspberry leaf, chamomile and cinnamon, my first daughter has a daughter and a son. Cardamom and ginger root, cumin and turmeric, this is my second daughter's music. Poppy seed and elderflower. I'm not yet old, but getting older. Jinko, saffron, and dill will not cure my husband's ills. Marigold and rue, hyssop and shepherd's wart, all I haven't learnt. Bay leaf, Sage and caraway, 
Which confers wisdom? Which longevity? Nasturtium and rose, starflower and clover, flowers to think things over. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Black Worlds Presents. Follow our Twitter and Instagram at Blackwell Oxford. Have a look at our Eventbrite page to see what events are coming up in the bookshop. And don't forget to check out our YouTube channel, which features many author interviews. Thanks for listening. <laughs>